0: That is so cool, I just can't believe how cool these guys are every week. Amazing. We'll turn to the book of Leviticus, Levi Tychus, Leviticus, and we'll begin in chapter 1. We're doing this series on Leviticus. Two weeks ago we looked at chapter 1, last week we looked at chapter 2, and this week we're going to look and study chapter 3. But in order to get to chapter 3 I want to quickly review chapters 1 and 2 and I'll tell you when we when you see how brilliant God is and when you see how brilliant his book is and when you see how brilliant his instructions are and how it all fits together I guarantee it will blow your mind so be prepared <laughs> Now stay with me a bit we're going to go through we're going to tread through some pretty deep water before we bring it together at the end Now Notice Leviticus chapter 1 verse 2. Speak to the Israelites and say to them, when anyone among you brings an offering, and the word offering has its roots in the Hebrew word to come near. So what God is saying is, I have provided a way for you to come near to me. And so now in Leviticus, he's going to outline how to come near to him. When anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. You must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. The word atonement means to cover over or... It means at one It means having peace, being at one with somebody, at one with God. This sacrifice will make atonement for you. Here's the simple idea. You would bring in an animal from either the flock or the or the herd and you would lay your hand on the animal. The idea was you would offer this animal and the blood of the animal is symbolic of your own blood. So when you laid your hand, on the animal the idea was God says I've set it up so the animal gets what you deserve and you get what the animal deserves the idea is the animal is your substitute the idea is that we've all wronged the holy God who created us and what I do is in Leviticus 1 I place my hand on the animal and the word means to lean and to press firmly I lean on the lamb and that lamb Dead of me, the lamb dies in my place. And the idea was the lamb takes upon itself my sin symbolically. God said, You do that, and then the blood of the animal will cover your sin. I'm wrong. If you believe in the sacrifice, then the blood of the animal, I won't see all your wrongdoing and all your imperfections. I'll see instead the blood of the animal. The blood of the animal will cover your sins. So chapter one is all about atonement, being forgiven. Grain offering. We saw this last week. Anyone brings if any when anyone brings a grain offering to the Lord. So that we talked about the ingredients last week of the grain offering. And the idea behind the grain offering is when you placed the grain offering on the altar, it was a way of surrendering completely to God and giving up your life to Him completely. So the grain offering carries with it this symbolism of chapter one, you've been forgiven. So now chapter two, you surrender your whole life to God. Makes sense? And it's just natural, isn't it? You've been forgiven. Your sins have been covered, chapter 1. So your natural response is, chapter 2, I want to give my whole life back to God. (laughs) I could never repay you, God, but I will surrender my will to you utterly. And I will order my life around anything you want me to do. I will follow you in everything. So chapter 1, you're forgiven. Chapter 2, you give your life to God. Now notice chapter 3 which is our passage tonight, if your offering is a fellowship offering. The word fellowship, it comes from the Hebrew word shalim, which is where we get the word shalom. Let me hear you say shalom, which means peace. The idea of peace, well-being, or health, shalom. So the context of this is, this is not something you have to do. To come near to me, you don't have to do this, says God. In chapter 7, this peace offering is called a free will offering because you don't have to offer it. This is not something that we need to do for forgiveness of sins or for reconciliation to God. This is something we do of our own free will. So if someone's offering a peace offering or a shalom offering or a fellowship offering, and you, the same thing, and you offer that offering and you offer an animal from the herd, whether male or female, you represent before the Lord an animal without defect. You were to lay your hand on the head of your animal and slaughter it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Does it mention anything about atonement? No. Does it mention anything about your sins being forgiven? No. Now then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall splash the blood against the sides of the altar. From the fellowship offering, you are to bring a food offering to the Lord, the internal organs and all the fat that is connected to them. Thanks for the detail. Both kidneys, (laughs) with the fat on them near the loins and the long lobe of the liver, which you will remove with the kidneys. Whoa. This reminds me of year seven science. Class, take the frog, pin the frog's legs down. And that girl that passed out when she smelled smelled the formaldehyde, remember that? Very interesting. You burn only a part of the animal. The fat, the kidneys, the long lobe of the liver. Burn that as an offering, as a food offering to the Lord. Now hold your place in chapter 3 back to chapter 1, verse 9. Leviticus 1, verse 9. Now this is a description of the sacrifice in the first chapter. And it says, Leviticus 1, 9, You are to wash the internal organs and the legs with water, and the priest is to burn how much of it? All of it. Because we want all our sins to be forgiven, don't we? So in chapter 1, burn all the animal because we're symbolically talking about our sin. We want all our sins to get smoked, as it were. We want all our sins to get burned up. But in chapter 3, it doesn't say all. It says, offer to God the fat and the kidneys and the covering of the liver. Now, is this a little strange? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Some of you are going, yeah, no, that's completely normal. That <laughs> makes complete sense. Now, in those days, meat was this incredibly precious commodity. Meat was totally rare. And the fat of the meat was considered an even greater rarity. Meat was just so rare. But then the fat of the meat was considered the ultimate delicacy. And there were certain sheep that they were bred and they had an extra long tail <laughs> because you could get more fat on the tail. And only the wealthiest, only those who had more than normally life offers, only they, the wealthy, could partake of this kind of delicacy. It was incredibly expensive. That's why the prodigal son, Luke 15, comes back, kill the fatted calf. So the idea of fattened is, God has blessed us, and it's symbolic of God's best. And the idea behind the fat was, it wasn't really needed by the animal to survive. It was just this incredibly valuable, precious commodity in a country where you would rarely even eat meat. The fat of the meat is the very, very best. And God says, give the fat to me. Does God want our best? Yes. So when you come to the peace offering, God says, offer to me, first off, the fat, because I want to know that you and I are tight. And then you give me the best. And when you give me the best, I see that your heart is for me. But if I give only the shoddy half-baked pieces, that's a reflection of how I view God, isn't it? But they were to be sincere and earnest and to give God the absolute best. So first off, the fat. Then the kidneys and the liver, kind of the entrails. Now, why the entrails? Well, it's interesting if you're studying this, and we don't have time to go into this tonight, but throughout the Bible, those parts of the Bible, the lobe the liver and the kidneys, came to be synonymous with the heart. In the book of Jeremiah, the book of Job, these words um, for these inner parts are translated the heart. Because these entrails were considered the most inner organs. These organs were way deep down. And the idea was that when you, when you came to God, he wanted the deep down you, symbolized by these organs of the animal. He wanted your emotions. He wanted your desires. He wanted right down in your very guts. You know how we say, you know, I felt in my guts, that wasn't right to do. Our guts, the deep down us, is where we know what's right and wrong often. And God says, it's right down there. I want that. I want the absolute bottom of your personality. The absolute innermost parts I want you to offer to me. I want your heart. Now the question is, if you throw all this stuff on the altar, the fat and the lobe of the liver and the kidneys, the innermost parts and that goes up in smoke, what happens to the rest of the animal? Logical question. Now, Leviticus 7 talks about what to do with the animal. But turn instead to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 12. The question is, what did they do with the rest of the animal? Now, when you see this, wow. (laughs) This is extraordinary. Deuteronomy 12 the title in my Bible is the, pla- uh, the One Place of Worship. Notice verse 4, God is speaking to Israel and he's speaking about their neighbours and he says, Deuteronomy 12 verse 4, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way, but you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. There bring your burnt offerings, which is Leviticus chapter what? 1, and sacrifices, Leviticus 2, and your tithes and special gifts, what you have vowed to give, and your free will offerings. That's referring to Leviticus chapter what? 3. Excellent. <laughs> so he says, when you bring Leviticus 3 to me, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks, notice verse 7, there in the presence of the Lord your God, after you have offered, You and your family shall eat and shall rejoice in everything you have put your hand to, because the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall eat. So the peace offering is the only offering that the people of God actually ate. Now turn to a couple of pages to chapter 16 of Deuteronomy and notice what he says in verse 10. Deuteronomy 16 verse 10. Then celebrate the festival of weeks to the Lord your God by giving, and what does your Bible say? Free will offering in proportion to the blessings the Lord your God has given you. And rejoice, throw a righteous party. Rejoice before the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name. You, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants and the Levites, the foreigners, the fatherless and the widows who live in your towns. The foreigners, that's the homeless and the strangers, or the people that aren't really part of your clan and don't talk like you and don't dress like you and don't have your habits and customs, and the fatherless and the widows living among you. Does God have a heart for those who've been dealt a really awful blow in life? Yes. So God says, I want you, if you'd like to, because of your joy in chapter one, you've been forgiven. Because of the surrender of chapter 2, you've given your life to God. If you'd like to, come up to the temple, offer an animal in thanks, symbolic of an honest, sincere, authentic, pure heart for God. And then with the meat that's left over, I want you to throw a party. And when you throw that party, I want you to invite all your friends, your family, your sons, your daughters, any, any of your hired servants, And then I want you to invite those people that maybe are from a different part of town who maybe grew up a little differently than you did. Those people who are fatherless, who have no father, the widows who've lost a husband. I want you to invite all of them. And I want you to celebrate. I want you to invite all those who've had a rough life. And I want you to take what I have given you and I want you to celebrate how good I am with all the people around you. Now, this is even more fascinating. 1 Kings chapter 8. This is the dedication of the temple because God had said, I want you to do this at the temple, at the place where I will put my name, where people can come and enter my presence and worship me. 1 Kings chapter 8. And so here they're consecrating, or they're kind of, it's a ribbon cutting, it's a grand opening of the temple. And Solomon, who builds the temple, has a celebration of how good God is. In One Kings eight sixty four, a terribly long chapter. Verse sixty four. On that same day, the king consecrated the middle part of the courtyard in front of the temple of the Lord, and there he offered burnt offerings, Leviticus chapter what? Grain offerings, Leviticus chapter what? And the fat of the fellowship offerings, Leviticus chapter what? Now, why does he offer the sacrifices? in the order of Leviticus. Why does God prescribe chapter 1, then chapter 2, then chapter 3? And then why does Solomon actually offer them in that order? Now, if God can bring order out of the chaos and create the universe, surely the order of Leviticus is important. Turn back to Leviticus chapter 3. Now, when you see this, wow, I can preach this. Leviticus chapter 3, verse 5. Then Aaron's sons are to burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering that is lying on the burning wood. It is a food offering and aroma pleasing to the Lord. Wow. The fellowship offering is to be offered on top of the burnt offering. They offer and celebrate peace on top. Leviticus chapter 1 the burnt offering think about it a minute the idea behind chapter 3 is you are celebrating your peace with God right and another word for peace is fellowship you're celebrating fellowship with God you're celebrating the fact that you and God have been reconciled and now you've been reconciled to God because of what Leviticus chapter 1 the burnt offering the lamb died in your place And so you've been forgiven. And so chapter 2, Leviticus 2, now you've given your life to God. And so now in chapter 3, you offer on top of the burnt offering, you offer a peace offering, a fellowship offering. And then you take that meat and you invite all your friends and family, your male servants and your female servants. You invite the foreigners and you ask yourself, who's hurting around me? And I'll invite them as well. And you offer this meat, and you have this rare delicacy of meat. And with all your neighbours and friends and those who are less fortunate than you, you have a party. Now, when God says the word rejoice, it isn't just hallelujah uh, or something. Rejoice is throw a party. And make sure it's loud. (laughs) And if you look through Psalms, you look through how the people of Israel went up to the temple to celebrate these things, it was loud. Rejoice is jump up and down. (laughs) Rejoice is overflowing with peace and joy. You can't even explain. So you're sitting at the feast. Chapter 1, God has forgiven me. I have peace with God. Chapter 2, I've surrendered my life to God. Chapter 3, let's party. How can I not celebrate? And how can I not celebrate with all those around me who I can draw together, especially those who are in need? Now, you can't have a party if you're not forgiven, can you? Because the purpose of this party is to celebrate the fact that you have peace with God. No peace, no party. Interesting. The order is you can only really have peace and joy with others when you already have peace and joy with who? with God so this is a beautiful picture you're sitting somewhere near the temple because it had to be eaten in the temple area you've just offered to God a peace offering you and God are tight and God no longer looks at you and sees your sin God looks on you he sees the blood covering you the blood of the sacrifice covers you and in response to that you surrender your life to God and then you have this banquet you have this banquet and invite all these people. Now say you just offered a peace offering and you invited the stranger, the fatherless, the widow. Do you think you'd tell them why you were inviting them? Yeah. Do you think that you as the host would be talking a mile a minute? Yep. Yeah. You'd be talking. I want you to come and I want to tell you Why? Because God has done so much for me. And he has forgiven me. And I've given all my life to him. And I just want you to share in that joy that I have now experienced. Peace and joy with God leads to peace and joy with others. Now, what does this have to do with us? Already in this series, we have seen that Leviticus is a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of what Jesus has done for us. He is the sacrificial lamb. And how where to respond to him. And it's the same as Leviticus. Peace and joy with God through Christ inevitably leads us into peace and joy and celebration with others. Turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. The gospel is the good news that Jesus has done something for us, He has brought us peace through His bloodshed for us. Hey, this is the good news. And it's such good news that it creates such life-changing joy in our innermost parts, such profound joy that it's natural for us to surrender everything to him and then to celebrate. How can we not celebrate? It's such a life-transforming joy that it just naturally leads us to constantly be inviting others in to celebrate with us, our neighbours, our friends, and those who are less fortunate. And this is how Romans 5 verse 1 puts it, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go through this step by step, just so we can hear how good this really is and why we ought to be the most celebratory people on the planet. We have peace with God. What does this mean? It means we have been justified. What does justified mean? It's not a very ordinary term. It's a technical kind of term. If I asked you to justify your statement to me, if you made a statement to me, does that mean I want you to change your statement or I want you to change my attitude to your statement? Yeah, if if I ask you to justify your statement, you want to try and change my attitude to your statement, my relationship to your statement. So when it says we've been justified, it's not saying so much that we have been changed. Really it's saying the main idea is God's attitude to us has changed. Justified means there's been a change in Him. And how he thinks about me. And how he regards me. And how he relates to me. He sees me differently now. And of course that's going to change me down the track. But the initial obvious most important thing is God has changed in his regard of me. I have been justified. Since we have been justified through faith, when we believed when we had faith, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access by faith to this grace in which we now stand. The word stand here, the Greek word means to stand in the presence of a great king or judge. We now stand in front of God in a completely new relationship. What does this mean? Jesus has done something for us. He's covered our sins. Leviticus chapter 1. So now when God looks at us in spite of our wrong, He's changed how He sees us. His relationship now is different. Something has changed. That's the good news. He sees me differently. He looks at me now and He loves me. He delights in me. He accepts me. And then, because of that, things happen inside me and I surrender completely to Him. Because then, if it wasn't about that, if it was what I'm doing and how I'm responding and how I'm changing, it wouldn't be such good news, would it? It would all be, oh, I have to do something. I have to change. But this is fundamentally not saying that. It's saying something has changed outside of me. He's changed. God's changed in his viewing of me. And now I stand in this new relationship. I have peace with God and he has a new attitude to me. So this is more than forgiveness. Now stay with me here. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with forgiveness. But some people think peace with God is really just forgiveness. Or that salvation is all about forgiveness. Just that. That's what Jesus achieved. He achieved forgiveness. It's not just because Jesus died on the cross, now when I do something wrong, I can ask for forgiveness and be forgiven. Yes, I can. I can ask for forgiveness and be forgiven. That's incredible. That is incredibly incredible. And yet it's not what this is saying entirely. That's way less than what this is saying. Because if peace with God is only forgiveness and God forgives me and wipes the slate clean, do you realize what that means? It means even though he's forgiven me for what I've done wrong, I'm still a sinner. And God still views me as a sinner. And God really hasn't really changed his attitude to me. Here's an illustration. Say you're in prison. What's going to get you a new life if you're in prison? Definitely you want to be pardoned. Definitely the governor wants to write, you know, get the governor to write a pardon out. Issue forgiveness. You are forgiven. Wow, you can go free. You can get out of jail. Okay, you're out of prison. You've been forgiven. But you're still a criminal. And society will not treat you well because that's who you are and you might even commit another crime. And people will be wary of you And you won't have peace and joy with others. Because essentially that's who you still are. You are a criminal. Well, what do you want more than that? (laughs) Well, this is saying that peace with God is not so much like just getting a pardon and getting out of prison. Besides getting a pardon and getting forgiveness, it's like being given the Order of Australia medal on top of that. And being honoured and respected. By God. It's a negative. You got out of something, but it's also a positive. Now something has happened. In a positive sense. There's a TV series called NCIS. Who watches it? Yeah. It's about the Navy Criminal Investigative Services. It's a cop show. uh, But it's Military Criminal Investigators. And there's a really cool episode about a poor, broken-down old man, an ex-Marine. He's in his 80s. He's a bit eccentric. He's a bit crazy. And he's accused of murder. And at one point, these two huge Marine guys and this overly aggressive Navy, Navy lawyer, they come after this poor little old man. And they're about to arrest him. And they're standing over him. And he's standing in their presence accused. But as they stand there, And they're about to cuff him. A friend of the old man pulls his tie aside and under his tie is the Congressional Medal of Honour because he'd done extraordinary acts of valour and bravery beyond the call of duty. And he'd been given a Congressional Medal of Honour. And his friend pulled that aside and the Marines and the lawyer who was out to get him immediately see what it is and instead of looking at him as this poor little old man, the accused, they see the Medal of Honour and immediately snap to attention and salute the man. <laughs> and, they're, and they're in awe. And it's kind of over-the-top American you know, stuff. Uh, <laughs> but, but actually, it's really moving. It's really, really moving. This poor little old man, they realise, wow, he's got the Congressional Medal of Honour. And that's just a faint image of what we're talking about in the Gospel. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 puts it another way. God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What does this mean? On the cross, what does it mean that Jesus was made sin for us? God made him sin. Does that mean that sin was put into Jesus' heart so he became greedy or angry or violent? No, he was up there forgiving his enemies. He was up there loving his father, even though his father had turned his back on Jesus. It absolutely doesn't mean that he became sinful. It means he was treated as our sins deserve. And he was given the treatment that our record deserves. So when we surrender our lives to Christ, our sins are put on him, the sacrificial lamb. He becomes sin for us. God made him sin for us so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. What does this mean? It can't mean that automatically my heart becomes righteous any more than he became sinful on the cross. No. What it must mean is that we are covered with his medals. That we're covered with his glory. That we're covered with all the awards and the medals that his valour and that his bravery deserve. Because he took on evil and he defeated evil and we share his victor's spoils. We get all placed upon him that he deserves. His righteousness and vindication is placed on us. And that illustration I use doesn't quite work because the old man, basically, even though he was condemned, they suddenly saw his medal which he had, he had won Himself in a former life. In our case, we didn't win the medal. It was won by Jesus in a former life for us. And now the whole universe salutes us. And now God Himself delights in us. And we have become the righteousness of God in Christ. So peace with God doesn't just mean we're forgiven. It means we're clothed in the righteousness and achievements of Christ. A righteousness from God is given to me. It's a gift. And God no longer views me merely as a sinner. He views me as one who is covered with the medals that Christ has won. And that's why... In Romans chapter 5, Paul goes on to say, Rejoice. Really glory because this is the gospel. Revel in this. Throw a party. Because this is good news. This is incredible. And when I ask somebody, Hey, are you a Christian? And they say, Well, I'm trying. That shows they have not understood. Or some people say, well, I don't want to call myself a Christian because I don't feel worthy to bear his name. Of course we don't feel worthy to bear his name. Or we're not good enough. But we're in him and he's good enough. He's always good enough. He's absolutely good enough. And we're covered with his medals, covered with his trophies, covered with his badges and his banners and his ribbons. And that's just overwhelming. How can we not celebrate? Now, if it was just forgiveness, our dominant response might be relief more than joy. Phew, I got away with it. I'm off the hook for now. But this is saying so much more than that. My whole identity has changed. His whole regard for me has changed. And it's not like he just simply sees Christ when he looks at me. This is saying when he looks at me, he sees me covered with medals. And those medals are now mine, given as a gift. But no one's going to take them away. They're mine forever. And when he looks at me, he really does see that. And so, he delights in me and this of course changes how I view you and how you view me so I've discovered that I don't always get along perfectly with you (laughs) or you with me and my problem is when I sit down to this celebration this peace meal celebrating the peace that we have I find if I focus on those around me for too long I can get a little depressed anyone else like that Because I come to realize, hey, these people are not perfect. Quite a shock, really. And sometimes people say, you know, I've been going to church and I met some people and I think, hey, there's some things wrong in that church. Of course. (laughs) We're all flawed. We're all imperfect. And my problem, I don't know about you, is when I hang around other Christians, eventually, even the people I respect and love the most, eventually I see something in them that is not perfect. And it's sometimes quite a shock. Anybody ever been let down in that way? You have this person you totally admire, you totally trust, you think they're great. then all of a sudden, because of time, because you now know them a lot more and intimacy and you're now close enough, you see some of their weaknesses, which frankly are worrying. And you're disillusioned. Dave is not perfect. All right. He's not. <laughs> but the Bible teaches us that every one of us is flawed and sinful. That's the whole point. Which means if I get to know you and you get to know me, well, I know I will let you down. And I will let you down as a friend and I will let you down as a brother in Christ and I will let you down as your pastor. Why? Because I, Dave Miles, am a flawed, sinful human being. How then do we build This peace and joy between each other where we live a life of celebration, constantly embracing each other in that celebration. How do we do it? Colossians 1 verse 21 says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour, but now He, that's God, has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight without blemish and free from accusation. Key phrase, holy in his sight. This is saying the same thing (laughs) that we've been seeing. My problem is I look at you in my sight and I see a flawed, sinful human being just like myself. But God says, let me tell you something. When Jesus died on the cross and Jesus shed his blood for you, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, God says, when I look at you, I don't see what you're lacking. I don't see your shortcomings. I don't see your sin. I see my son's medals all over you. Key phrase, in his sight. You know, I can even learn to see you the same way. You and I both believe in Jesus. When I dine with you and eat with you, as we will later, I can learn to look at you through God's eyes Because when God sees you, he sees somebody holy. He sees that you're without blemish, without accusation, and more than that. He sees somebody who is covered with the glories of Christ. Why? Because when we place our faith in his blood and surrender our lives, God looks at us and likes what he sees. He really does. If God looks at you and likes what he sees, then I can look at you and like what I see. No peace, no parting. And we're never going to get along until we come to this realisation that Jesus' medals are hanging all over each of us. They really are. But we need to see it. So yeah, there's plenty of room to be disappointed in the Christian life and there's plenty of room for grief. But when I see that medal hanging behind your shirt, it just kind of slips out sometimes. (laughs) How can I write you off? How can I want to have nothing to do with you? If God has so honoured you to place all that honour on you, how can I not honour you? See, if peace with God was just forgiveness, I could write you off as just a sinner. Oh yeah, you got forgiven. You keep getting forgiven, but you just keep sinning. You're just a sinner. So many Christians make this mistake. But we're not just sinners. The righteousness of Christ has been placed on us. We are clothed in honour and glory. And so what can I do? I can honour you. I can glory in you. Paul uses that language always. He glories in the Christians that he writes to, regardless of the issues that they might be facing. How can I not celebrate with you when I see those matters? And how can we not welcome our neighbours and friends and everyone around? Because this is available to every living human being because it does not depend on what we do, but simply on Christ and what he has done. James is going to pray for us.